Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to begin the chapter. We've been walking through it little by little. Today we'll see just a little more. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning, and the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Wow, what a... What a message. Uh, if, if you're reading this letter and this is the only part you had, you might think that John is a little angry. It comes across, it comes across a, little, a little heavy and a little angry. But when you see how often John calls them little children, my little children, when he calls them beloved, we see that John's impulse for writing is out of love but out of protection. He is seeking to protect those that he has invested in. And so it is with uh, investment, it is with intentionality that John writes so strongly because he is seeking to correct the teaching of of these false teachers. And so today's text concerns our both our privilege and also our responsibility, both sides of the same relationship that we're given as children of God. So there's a couple, couple of things that we're going to look at today, and if you are in the habit of taking notes, there'll be much to glean. So John begins with a very interesting word as I teach through this first, and then we'll make application. Uh, the, the interesting way that John begins is, is, like, a, is like an attention grabber, like, like this is the very middle of the letter, and he smacks his hands together to say, hey, listen to me, see, pay attention. Halfway through, he claps, and he, he reminds them, see, 
what kind of love the Father has given to us. Pay attention to the truth that, and the way this word means is a truth that is more than just observing. It is a truth that begins in the eyes, that's very intentional through the eyes, down into the heart, uh, down through the, the mind, and then ultimately down into the heart. It's also written in present tense, which means that there is never a time where we should not be paying visual attention to the love that God has for us. As born-again believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be in the continual habit of looking for the love of God, and it is abounding all around us. Stare at his kind of love whenever you need to, whenever you struggle, whenever you're wrestling with truth, whenever you're wrestling with sin. Stare at his kind of love. And so often, though, we stare at our propensity of sin. But here, John admonishes us to stare at his great love for his people. The context is being ready for Jesus' second coming. Not, as we looked at last week, not shrinking away in embarrassment. So how can we abide, how can we be ready for Jesus' second coming? John is clear. By staring at Jesus' love, the love of God. This seems to be the key phrase for the rest of the passage that we've looked at. The changes that God desires to make in our lives, the transformation, the spiritual growth that God desires for each and every one of us will come only when we begin to grasp the great love that he has for us. It doesn't necessarily come with wisdom. It doesn't come over time. It comes as we understand and stare at his love. Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3. He said this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. You see that? To be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, when Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, we are rooted and grounded in love. For what reason? That we may have, verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see that? To be filled with all the fullness of God, you must first know the love of Christ. To know the love of Christ means that you need to be grounded in love so that, and we're grounded in love as Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, paying attention, staring at his love, we experience spiritual maturity. God's love, the Father's love, is unconditional. I want, I want you to hear me clearly this morning. This is not rocket science. Nothing that I will talk about today is, is difficult. But God's love is unconditional. God does not wait for us to clean our lives up 
before he starts loving us. He loved us long before you even thought about him. He loved us before we even had a clue. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, that thing that haunts you, those days that you regret, in those exact moments is when Jesus chose to go to the cross for you. It's incredible, this unconditional love. So many people think that God will only love them if they're better versions of themselves. God will only love them if they do better tomorrow. But I'm here to tell you today that God's love for his humanity, his creation, is unconditional. Now, you may not love him in return, but your love for him does not, is not a condition of his love for you. He does not love you because you love him. He loves you unconditionally. The parable of the prodigal son is a good illustration of that. Again, it's a parable. And so when you look at a parable, uh, it's, it's ways that Jesus teaches us the economy of the kingdom, the ecology of the kingdom and how it all connects. And Jesus tells the story of this son who uh, very defiantly goes to his father and demands his inheritance long before his daddy is, is gone. And, and it's the story of not the son, it's the story, at, at least in that son's uh, part of the story about a loving father. Even after the son left the father and squandered every bit of inheritance in the world, the father continued to wait and to love. In Luke 15, it says, And he arose and he came to his father, talking about the prodigal son, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and anybody remember? And had compassion on him. And he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. Jesus uses the parable to paint this picture of kingdom. The book of Hosea, whew, thank God he called me to be a pastor and not the prophet Hosea. If you've ever read, read the book of Hosea, you will know why I say that. Hosea was, God called Hosea to marry this gal. She was a prostitute. And after they'd been married a while and even had a couple of kids, she went back to her old way of life. Hosea was miserable and he asked the Lord, what should I do? And you know what the Lord told him to do? Go buy her back. When you get to that part of the story, I mean, that's a flip because you're expecting God to say, you know what? Dump her. He told her to take her back. Why? That By the way, this happens multiple times. Why? Because Hosea's entire marriage was a picture of God's marriage to Israel, a picture of his unconditional love. I'm glad Hosea gets to tell it. Not only is it unconditional, it's sacrificial. And that, you know, the world's idea of love is a very, I would say at best, mutual. In other words, what I'm saying is, I will love you, but what do I get out of it? Now, most people would not say that. Most people won't say, hey, I'll, I will love you, but I'm going to expect a little something in return. But we do live that way. The world does operate by that measure. 
But God's idea of love is all about how much he wants to give, not what he can receive in return. God's love is sacrificial. It's selfless. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He is a giver, not because we deserve it. He is a giver of the world that does not deserve it. In Romans chapter 3, verse 32, it says, He who did not spare his own son. It's one thing for God to send Jesus so that we could have better lives. But God the Father sent Jesus to die on the cross. And he gave him up for us all. There also never comes an end of God's love for us. Again, you may not respond that way to God's love, but you cannot affect the way God loves it's unending. And if we base our ideas on, on love of what, from what we get from TV and movies and friendships, then love is something that just kind of ebbs and flows. And I hear, I hear people say things like that often. It's like we get to a part where, you know what, sometimes love just dies. Sometimes love just whatever. Well, this is not the love of God. Because the love of God does not come and go. One minute we have it, the next minute it's gone. God's kind of love isn't emotional. It's not romantic. It's not magical. It doesn't spark. Romans chapter 8 verse 35 says, What or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, No, in all of these we are more than conquerors through him who... Loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. A lot of times we use 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in weddings or marriage counseling, and we talk about the kind of love that's demonstrated there. But I want you to understand that, that chapter 13, now this is, I mean, you got to go to school for a long time to learn this kind of stuff, okay? Chapter 13 is right in between chapter 12 and 14. It's very important. Uh, and the reason that it's important is chapter 12 and chapter 14 are, are chapters on spiritual gifts. And right in between there's an interruption about love. That's not an accident. That's very intentional. And so chapter 13 is not giving us the kind of love that a husband should have for his wife. It's actually describing for us the kind of love that our heavenly father has for his creation. But there's a strange thing. This exact kind of love is the kind of love that he commands his creation to love each other with. And so, yes, it's very appropriate in marriage, but it is first found in the perfection of God's love for his people. It talks about the things that love does and the things that love does not do. Love is patient. It is kind. It rejoices with all truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And so we know with what kind of love the Father loves us with. Kind of finishing verse 1, we kind of find the capstone of, of love. See, stare into this perfect kind of love that the Father has for his people. How is it best demonstrated that he would call us sons of God? Now, that word sons of God is the word technon. I know that you don't care about that, but it just simply means offspring, sons and daughters, children of God. It's not the Greek word weos, which means son. It's technon, offspring, or the product of. So I want to just stop for a moment. I want to take you on a real quick trip. And, and uh, it's been a little bit of time since I've taught this. And so I wanted to really get into our, our minds because it impacts a lot of our understanding. So there are three persons in the Scripture that the Bible calls son, a son of God. I won't ask you, but I will, I will explain. Number one, Adam is called a son of God. Number two, Jesus is called a son of God. And number three, throughout the Psalms, and we find in several other places in uh, the historical books of the Old Testament and in the book of Job, we find that the angels are also called the sons of God. And so a prerequisite for being called a son of God is to be directly created by God himself. The angels were hands-on of God created by him. Adam, hands-on with with God. God was hands-on with Adam, formed him out of the dust of the earth. Jesus, now you may say, well, wait, Jesus wasn't created by God. He was conceived in this life of the Holy Spirit, the Son of God. Now, when you get into John, the book of John, not 1 John, the Gospel of John, John says that there is a fourth Son of God, And for all of those who will receive him, he gives them the right to be called the sons of God. Us, the right. Say, wait a minute. When when God, when you said yes to Jesus, God recreated you with his own hands. And you became not only his creation, you became his children. It's a beautiful picture of this right and privilege. And we don't need to just willy-nilly call ourselves the son of God because it is very, and, and by the way, it's, it's a wrong statement to say that all of God's creation are the sons of God. Not true. It's reserved. It's a special right for those who have been recreated hands-on by God himself. Oh, see what manner of love the Father has for us. I want you to picture this. Picture, this is horrendous, by the way. 
Picture going home and finding your entire family has been destroyed, I'll just say it that way, by someone. And all of your things have been stolen. And then on that very day, you take the violator and you adopt them into your family and you love them with the same love that you loved your family with. I want you to get a little picture that pales in comparison of the perfect love of the Father and how he could possibly be willing to bring us into his family after we have destroyed his son. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Are you getting the picture? He's drawing a picture of us, who we were before Jesus, the sons of disobedience, not the sons of God. We were dead in trespasses and sins, He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's funny, we were once in the category of God's enemies. But because of his great love, not not based on how good you could be. For those of you who are waiting to get just a little bit better before you respond to God's love, I'm here to tell you, you will never reach that. It's not based on your goodness at all. That's a false gospel. That's a false narrative. Not because of how good you could be or who you are or how long you've been that or any other metric, but by who he is, his mercy, his love, his grace, he has adopted us into his family and he has made us his children. And if we are his, what difference does it make then how we live? If we are his, why does holiness matter? What causes us to make good decisions if my life is not dependent upon my actions If his love for me isn't dependent upon that, you know, that we live our lives considering guilt. Well, I'm going to make a good decision because I don't want to feel bad about it. Or I'm going to make a good decision or a right decision or a holy decision because of the consequences or because of the accountability. And I don't want all of my friends to to be angry at me or to get on to me. And and I'm telling you, when you're in the moment, I'm speaking as as an expert, when you're in the moment of of a bad decision, of a sinful decision, we generally are willing to steamroll our objections, our reputation. But I think that if we would stare at his love, we wouldn't so quickly steamroll his reputation. This is why John says, keep your eyes staring at his love because whatever you look at over time, you will become. Whatever you look at over time, you will become. The reason that the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. 
This word know, gnosko, means to, to learn. It's a knowledge that's grounded in experiences. There's another word, no. We've talked about it, ido. It means to see with the mind, to perceive, a mental perception, to kind of deduce, to have an understanding. John is using this idea of personal experience. The world is not experiencing Jesus personally. When they look at you, and they may even see Jesus, but they won't recognize Jesus when they see you. They won't recognize Jesus when they look at you. Why? Because they didn't recognize Jesus when he walked among them. The world isn't learning Jesus through us because they didn't know him either. Remember, go, go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, and, and we get this definition of all of those that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. Those who are in the world don't know what to make of Christians. They look at us and they scratch their head, just like they did of Jesus, because they have not come to a personal experience with God. Much of how you're treated is dependent on them knowing God. And if they don't know him, they're not going to love you more than they loved him. Not if you're acting like him. Not if you're loving like him. Certainly not if you're becoming like him. You ever, you ever wonder why? And, and again, I, there's a lot that could be said about this and how we have messed this up from generation to generation. But I think most born-again believers have a desire to love people. There's a, we may not know how to love all people, but there is a desire to love people. And when you try to love people, isn't it funny how when you try to love people of the world, they often respond in hate? Isn't it odd? Why is it odd? Because Jesus tried to love people that are of the world, and what he received was hate. So why is it surprising to us when we try to love people that we would be treated the same way that he was treated? In fact, Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But in all these things, they will do to you on my account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. He went further in John 16 and he said, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away because who would stay steady in the face of hatred? But they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he's offering a service to God. And if they do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Let me tell you, I know that we are to be known as people of love. But do not expect your love to be reciprocated. Not by everyone. Maybe by those that... God is drawing to himself, but not by everyone. Moving on to verse 2 and 3. I know you're looking at your watch and you're like, oh boy. No, we're going to move fast. We're moving fast. I'm not going to say I'm almost done, but I am going to say we're moving fast. 
There's two really big ideas here. Number one is the idea of becoming like Jesus when he appears, becoming like Jesus when he comes at his second coming. And number two is the idea of becoming like Jesus right now by purifying ourselves. I want us to really pay attention to that. It's found in verse three. This is something quite interesting. On one hand, there is this present purification, becoming like Jesus now, but at the same time, there is a purification and becoming like Jesus that is still yet in the future. So in verse two, he says, when Jesus comes, we shall be like him. Verse uh, Corinthians chapter 15 kind of expounds on this. Uh, verse 47, and, and, uh, and I'm going to read it, and then we'll get the context. Uh, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. He's talking about Adam compared to Jesus. As was the man of, <clears throat> of dust, so are also those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory so Paul's talking about two men Adam and Jesus and Paul says that we're going to bear the image of the second man, but it doesn't stop there. During Paul's description of the events, during Jesus' final return, he claims that we will be changed and we will become imperishable like Jesus. We will be given bodies imperishable similar to Christ. That's such good news, right? And with that good news, we think, boy, what will it be like to have a new body in heaven? So since I'm getting a new body in heaven, I might as well have fun with the one I got. Right? I mean, it stretches. <laughs> I don't have to take care of this body. I can do whatever I want to do to it if I get a new one. I can go wherever I want to go, sin however I want to sin. This body doesn't seem to matter. By the way, that was a teaching of the Gnostics. Well, no, John actually addresses that in verse 3. All who have this hope, all who have this hope of the second coming of Christ, this hope in him, purify themselves. Purify themselves. Okay, so I want to purify myself. I'm pretty happy with my purification. You know, I've reached the level that I'm comfortable. No, no, no. Purify themselves just as he is pure. That's the metric. We, we, we go by his metric, not our metric, because we would never go that far with our purity. So there is a future transformation that makes us like Jesus, but there is also an expectation of a present transformation. And I know this is a little bit complicated, but we are to, we will be like Jesus, but we are to become like Jesus now. The future transformation he's going to do. 
The present transformation he's left us in charge of. This idea of purify yourself is the word hognizo, and it's important because it, it means to be ceremonially clean. There's another word that could be used. It's the word catharizo. It's where we get our word a catheter. If you know what a catheter is, it's something that goes through and it, it does the cleaning for you, right? To be made clean, to, to be cleansed. But this idea of hognizo is to do self-cleaning, clean yourselves. John uses a Greek word that speaks of ceremonial cleanness. It goes back to the Old Testament it speaks to the things that must be done in order to attend the temple, the sacrifices, the worship, prayer. Generally, the Mosaic law speaks of something as clean or pure or unclean or impure to determine its fitness to be used in the temple. Being clean or unclean was a ceremonial designation that governed the ritual of all of Israel's corporate worship when they came together. Certain foods that couldn't be eaten, if you did eat it, you were ceremonially unclean until a certain time. Or if you touched a dead body, you were ceremonially unclean for a certain time. There were many of these that would allow a person to be clean or unclean temporarily. They were unable to participate in the worship ceremony. It was very clear to them. And I believe the ultimate goal of clean and unclean things is found in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10 where it says, you are to distinguish between holy and common, between unclean and clean. God gives the responsibility to Israel for them to learn over time what is appropriate and inappropriate, what is clean, what is not clean, what is pure, what is not pure. Here, John uses that word, purify yourselves. Do the work, what it takes to be pure, according to Jesus Christ. It's your responsibility. That's why John uses this word. Jesus accomplishes the primary and the eternal action so that you can perform the secondary and daily action. John is speaking of the difference between justification. This is, just stay with me for a few minutes. Justification, which says that I am saved he is comparing justification with sanctification, this act of progressive salvation. I am saved spiritually, but I am being saved day by day as I become more and more like Jesus. So he says, Jesus has made you ready, now ready yourself. And John writes it in the present active tense, which means that this is a continual action. The grace of God does not absolve me of personal responsibility when it comes to personal holiness. The grace of God actually makes it possible. Well, you can claim, well, I'm saved. It doesn't matter what I do anymore. Or, I'm saved. God will forgive me. Or you can continue to live in your, in your, in your sin and in your temptation to way too close to the line. And you can say, thank God for the grace of God. But I'm telling you, the grace of God makes it possible for you to live like Jesus. Not excuse sin. If you're going to purify yourself, who would purify themselves if they didn't recognize impurity? Our sin 
as we recognize our sin and we focus on purity, you know what it makes us consider? It makes us stare at his perfect love and be reminded of his purity, not our sin. It's been a moment since we read it, so let's look at it again. Verse three, everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Listen to this. This is important. As we become like Jesus, as we become like Jesus, it's in direct proportion to our hope in him. Okay? I want to say that again. Becoming like Jesus is in direct proportion of how much you hope you have in Jesus. So why do we bother purifying ourselves in such a way? If Jesus has already made us holy, eternally holy, then why would I worry about daily holiness? Because our daily sanctification, our daily holiness, our daily Christ-likeness proves where our hope is. Listen, if you're content in your sin, it's because you're not living with hope. You're staring at the wrong things. You're looking in the wrong direction. But if you will stare at his perfect love, you will recognize that your choices in holiness are worth it because it gives credibility to his worth and his glory. And we can stand in church and we can lift our hands and talk about Jesus being worthy. But you know what proves it? Your choices when you leave this place. you've been following this series so far, you'll notice that John is saying some things that he's really already said in uh, John, 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I call this if but what, all right? You can write that down. It's very theological. <laughs> if but what, right? If this but that equals what? Except I say what because I'm, I'm from eastern Kentucky, okay? If but what? If we say, but we act in this direction, then what happens? If we say we are in him, but we don't live holy, we lie. If we say we have no sin, we lie to ourselves. If we say we have not sinned, we call God a liar. John uses this approach many times in, in 1 John, and we actually see it here in verse 6. I just want to set the formula. He says in verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If you claim to be in Jesus but continue sinning, then, or what, you haven't seen or known Jesus. Now, we've covered this before. Obviously, John is not saying that anyone who follows Jesus cannot sin because we can he just simply says that when we do, we recognize it. We're quick. Holiness makes us quick to recognize sin. By the way, this is exactly what Leviticus 10.10 says, that we know holiness, and very quickly when you think something, you act in a certain way, or your attitude creeps up, or those sorts of things happen in your life, or you're caught off guard, you're very quick to be able to determine what is common and what is holy, what is clean and what is unclean. 
I'm telling you, a lot of Christians say, can I get away with this? I mean, is it wrong for a Christian to do this or this? You know what? Here's the thing. If you will choose holiness, the Holy Spirit himself will tell you what is clean and unclean. There's not a list that you can look at, not some reference. In fact, James says, if you know something is sin and you do it, it's sin to you. If you, if you don't act by faith, it's sin regardless of somebody else might be able to do it. I mean, this is really up to you to determine what is clean or unclean, what gives God glory, what doesn't give God glory. This is what John is talking about. Nail it down, live holy so that you can know if it glorifies God or not. Be quick to know if something is holy or not. And if you do find that you have sinned, if you are provoked in your heart that something is wrong, Here's what John says. Oh, confess it. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not about perfection. Listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, Christians aren't perfect. I'm just going to go ahead and let you know. I've never met a perfect Christian. In fact, most Christians I know have a lot of work to do, including this one. Christians are not perfect. The issue with Christianity is not, I don't want to become a Christian because they're a bunch of hypocrites. You nailed it. That's exactly right. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. But the difference is, is we're not satisfied being hypocrites. Born again Christians recognize their hypocrisy and they keep driving it back to Jesus looking for personal holiness. That's the difference. Is we don't pet our sin, we don't tolerate our sin, we recognize our sin, we drive it back to the perfect love of God, and we ask for forgiveness. We repent of it. So he's stressing the importance of making us a making a conscious effort not to sin. So why do we why do we purify ourselves as Jesus does? To be worthy? Of course not. To be acceptable? No way. So that he will love us, maybe. No, 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 of course not. We could never do enough good for God to love us because he loved us first, perfectly, unconditionally, sacrificially, and without end. We don't live holy so that we can be saved. We live holy because we are saved. John says we live holy because there's hope in us. Because I'm looking forward to that eternal change. I'm giving myself today to the daily change. Verse 7, anyone who practices righteousness is righteous. What is righteousness? It means to be in right standing with God. Where does it come from? It only comes from a right relationship with Jesus. This righteousness is not talking about your good deeds. It's talking about as you trust the righteousness of Jesus. Our actions begin to look like Jesus' actions. Our thoughts, our, our loves, our desires begin to look like Jesus. John is talking about those who live in the hope of Jesus, who live in, practice his righteousness, who follow the example of Jesus. Those that when the world looks at them, they would say, they act like Jesus. And they will make a decision if they love Jesus or if they hate Jesus. One more if but what, okay? Verse 8, John says, Whoever says they abide in Jesus but does what is sinful, what is of the devil? Oh. 
You know, it's one thing to say that your allegiance lies with God. It's one thing to make a verbal confession of what you believe about God. But how do our actions line up with our claims? Listen, folks, allegiance to Jesus is not about words. It's about heart. It's about actions. If you get all the way to end of verse 10, we get one. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor anyone who does not love their brother or sister. If you claim to be a Christian, but you don't do what's right, or you don't love your brother or sister with the love that God loves you with, what? Then you're not a child of God. Wait a second. We've seen that before too, haven't we? In fact, we're going to see this many times as we continue to go through 1 John. John continues to give us the same message over and over and over. If somebody wrote you a letter and they, and they told you the same thing in that letter multiple times, you probably would say, you know, I think this is pretty important to them. But how often we gloss over personal holiness. We gloss over loving one another. We gloss over our responsibility not to you know, make God proud of us, but to make Jesus known. We make salvation like we are the beneficiaries. We become the central character because we're focused on what God's going to do in us in eternity. But John puts it back on us and he says, you've got some responsibilities right now to manifest Jesus in your mind, in your attitudes, in your heart, and through your actions. And that's how you prove where your hope is by what you're staring at. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you this morning and we thank you that you've given us an opportunity to clearly, and we've had, you know, I think about those first Christians, maybe even that first creation of, of trying to figure out what love really looks like. And, and, you know, John didn't have an apostle John. Paul didn't have an apostle Paul to read from. They experienced this love. And you moved upon them to demonstrate that love and to write it down to preserve it for us. We have had at least 2,000 more years to prove your kind of love. And thank you, Lord, for being faithful. And I pray that getting caught up in this perishable creation, getting caught up in the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life that we are bombarded with every moment. There's very few moments. This is one of them where we don't run headlong into some obstacle that would threaten to take our eyes off your love. And Lord, I pray as a matter of habit and as a matter of confession and commitment that we would keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And only then can we learn to love like him as we hope in his coming. So I pray that Christians wouldn't look like the world. I pray the world would see Christians and not know what to do with us. So Lord, I pray that you would give us a fresh sense of your Holy Spirit that would convict our hearts, convict our actions, and we wouldn't lie to ourselves and say, well, we're good enough, or, well, we've prayed a prayer and we've checked a box, but that we would evaluate ourselves and to see where there is sin in our life 
and where that's in proportion to our lost hope or where we would see a desire for more of you in our life and a renewed vigor for to look into the future and to see the hope that we truly have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for him, Lord, and we give ourselves to you as best I can this morning. I ask that you would forgive us where we have tripped, forgive us where we have been distracted, and I pray that today that everyone in here who is born again would remember that they have been handcrafted by, by you because we are loved by you. And Lord, if there are any in here today that have not given themselves to you, that they would recognize as children of disobedience, children of wrath, that we have set ourselves up as enemies. And we can't be better people just by choosing to do better unless we are first given the hope of Christ. So I pray today they would make that first decision to receive the hope that only comes in the worthy name of Jesus. And in that name we pray, amen. Will you stand with me, please? If you're here today and you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, you know that you are not in a right relationship with him and, and you're hoping that one day you can be good enough to be saved, I pray that you will, you will recognize that for the lie that it is. And I pray that you'll come down here and you'll let someone can show you how to how to re- have a relationship with Jesus, how you can begin to live in hope. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you've allowed that hope to kind of wane, or, or, or maybe when you think about hope, you're 100% in, but if you're not like thinking about it, focused on it in that moment, you know, it's, it's all the distractions of the world. Today, I pray that you would make a commitment and you would ask God to give you eyes to see the hope of Jesus Christ. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.